Welcome to The Fabric, a podcast from Lobby Capital. In this podcast, we explore the people we back, the people we work with, and those we partner with in hopes of better understanding what leads to successful entrepreneurship. Recognizing there is no single recipe or list of ingredients in successful entrepreneurs, but instead a combination of past experiences, relationships, serendipity, and personal characteristics that shape and influence their achievements. So through our conversations, we will dissect various case studies in hopes of unraveling the fabric of successful entrepreneurs. Welcome to The Fabric, a podcast by Lobby Capital. I'm Buddy Arnheim, your host, and I'm here with Sid Saxena, founder, CEO of Docket. Docket is essentially an AI-powered accounting automation software platform. It allows much faster decision-making because it digitizes the financial data, automates the workflows, and it continuously reconciles the books and the records, thereby giving the business people real-time accounting. So Sid, welcome to The Fabric. I'm so looking forward to this conversation. Great, buddy. Thanks for having me here. We're going to start at the very beginning. We'll look back and tell us you know, where you grew up and a little bit about what Sid was like as a young man. Absolutely. You know, I come from a very traditional middle-class uh, Indian family, very loving childhood, lots of uh, family members, joint family structure. How many siblings are there? Uh, I have just one sibling. This goes back to India's focus on reducing the population. Right. So growing up, we saw these billboards across the road, you know, just two kids, one boy, one girl. And believe it or not, an entire generation of Indians only have two kids. My dad is a civil engineer, government servant all his life built dams and canals that got me, you know, my mind and creativity started in uh, civil engineering and large scale engineering stuff from childhood. And he was away. Uh, it was a transferable job. So he would be traveling. And where were you guys living? So we were in a very small town called Kota uh, in the state of Rajasthan, which is the western part of India. It's yep. the only desert state, which connects my memory again to growing childhood thing around saving water. You know, Rajasthan, the state is a dry state. There's almost no water. So I have a very intense memory of every early morning rising up and having these buckets full of water conserved and preserved for the day. And my mom made me in charge of that. So I would diligently do that work. And are you the oldest of the children? No, I'm the younger one. But, you know, we had a lot of cousins, a lot of cousins, uh, sisters, a lot of uh, cousin brothers. uh, Mm -hmm. And uh, on my mom's side, it was a huge joint family of about uh, 20 people living under the same roof. So growing up, it was uh, an incredible childhood. Went to a lot of uh, multiple cities, traveled a little bit inside the country, never traveled outside. Did you travel with your dad for work ever? Did he ever bring uh, you or he, he would take us to the sites which he had delivered. Mm-hmm. For example, a local dam yes. that he built upon. And it was overwhelming to see, you know, this uh, 500, 600 feet deep dam on a huge river just to see the engineering marvel and my dad's name written on the billboard of you know all the civil engineers who worked on that project. That was like a very proud I'm thing. I'm sure that was incredibly impressive. impressive. Absolutely. And how open was he about his job? Did he talk to you about what he was doing? Was that his passion? Any sense? For- so, you know, my dad is the oldest sibling in his uh, family group. So he would always disseminate his education and learning with everybody else in the family. So he was almost like a a father figure, a patriarch for the whole family. So he has a lot of ideas and insights and he liberally shares with everybody in the family. And as kids, I remember that we would just uh, huddle in a corner listening to all these grown-up conversations. So, you know, lots of interesting uh, details would fall in our ear around economics, around politics, around uh, civil engineering. Anybody who wanted to construct their home would of course come to my dad for advice and he would talk about uh, RCC and pillar width and dimensions and uh, all of that, those simple things, you know, just uh, brought out a lot of insights. Would you say that that was something that stoked your interest in pursuing a science orientation? In India, science is considered like the thing to do. So Mm -hmm. it was not even an option. Can you do something other than becoming a doctor and engineer? Not even an option if you are a middle class person because your family just straight up tells you, do you want to be successful or not? If you want to be successful, become an engineer or a doctor. I come from a family of engineers, so it was an easy choice. You know, I grew up in the city which became famous for IIT entrance coaching examinations. 
So if you know about IIT, they are the premier educational institutes in India. And the era where I was graduating from high school was this early tipping point of enough coaching and tuitions available to get into IITs before it became a floodgate. In the sense that if you think about Silicon Valley, you know, when Intel got formed, that was one of the first breaking up of a Silicon company. And now all of a sudden you have these, the entire Silicon Valley developed. Now every nook and corner is filled up with a tech company. So that little sleepy town was becoming or about to become an educational hub. So I was lucky enough to study under teachers who eventually would create their own separate education institution. So I got the best of the education, which helped me succeed and uh, get into IIT before IIT became the big thing, which the whole planet came to know about. So this was, uh, what, 98, 99 time period. In fact, I remember uh, in 97, one of my teachers in mathematics, he stood up and said to the whole class that if you ever want to know what you want to do in life, learn Oracle. Really? And I had no clue what Oracle was. He just said it. I And there was no Wikipedia then. There was uh, absolutely no internet. So I had no clue, but I connected the dot later on and this was when Oracle as a company had just emerged in the, this uh, you know, uh, right. tech landscape. And this guy was familiar with it. Will you take a step back? Because there's a lot of folks that will listen to this podcast and are not as familiar with the Indian higher education system process. You mentioned IIT. You mentioned that went to IIT before it became sort of what it is known today. Although I will say back in the 90s, I was very aware of IIT. It's, it's sort of to the extent, this may be a disparaging comment, but it's sort of the Harvard of India, right? It's the elite uh, higher education institution. Talk about sort of the process of working through high school and starting to think about higher education, what kind of pressures there were, what kind of supports there were, how many of your fellow students were sort of aiming for higher education. And, and just talk through that. Absolutely. That's a process that's not as well known. So India is a country. There's a large amount of population and people are not generally rich. So the only way to succeed in life is through education. Through generations, that has been our culture that if you study hard, if you follow the system, if you follow the process, you're going to succeed. And education and the best in breed education always lets you grow in your life. That is the mantra. But going back into late 80s, early 90s, India was just coming out of this closed society and liberalization and industrialization was kicking in which required a lot many more engineers to come in. But the colleges were very few. Imagine for 100,000 kids who wanted to become engineers, there were only 2,000 IIT seats available. There was a second rung of engineering colleges, but again, they were very regional and the quality of education was not at par. The typical kid who's preparing for their life would first go up till grade 10 uh, high school. And from grade 10 onwards, for the next two years of the remainder of high school, they would study hard towards these entrance examinations. And these entrance examinations really decide your future of life. If you succeed, you get to the best ones. If you perform a little bit above average, you get to the second tier. And if you don't perform at all, then you no have pressure. to then no you have to figure out what you want to do. <laughs> and were there preparatory classes for these entrance exams or was it just wrong? It was so mind-numbing that the coaching colleges had entrance exams. Imagine that. Yeah. Um, entrance exams for entrance. Entrance <laughs> exams for an entrance exam preparatory class. Right. Uh, and uh, believe it or not, I did not succeed in one such highly prestigious, uh, you know, entrance prep college. And then what was your path then? How did so you- everybody in my family said, if you can't even clear the entrance exam of this coaching institution, how would you clear IIT? And I was disappointed as well. So I resigned to my fate and went back, found a tutor, a local tutor, uh, who my dad helped arrange and started learning or, uh, you know, going through math classes with that tutor. But within a couple of months, me and my dad both realized that that's not going to cut it. And Mm -hmm. incidentally, this particular tutor was right in front of the coaching college where I hadn't gotten the admission. So one fine day, I just uh, asked my dad, hey dad, give me the tuition that this coaching thing was uh, charging, which was 5,000 rupees. You know, imagine a stack of bills. 
I took it and I straight up went to the office of this coaching institution and I put down 5,000 rupees in front of the desk and said, you know, I would love to just join the classes and a class is going on upstairs. Can I go? And they looked at the bill. They looked at the money. They took the money and said, go upstairs, take your package. That's it. That blew my mind away. Looking back in hindsight, you know, that was one of the critical turning points in my life where I was able to bring change through changing human behavior. I understood human behavior for the very first time. And I started realizing, okay, you know, I need to show a little bit confidence. And uh, that started me on this journey. Had I not taken that path, probably I wouldn't be sitting here today. Put yourself out there. It's a great message. It was a it was a very uncomfortable thing to do as well. Right, sure. Your head was hanging. You were exposed. Yeah, they my, could have said no. They could have rejected you. In all of this, you know, my family supported tremendously. Uh, without their support, you know, it wouldn't have happened. And then it started that three-year-long grueling journey of preparation. So training hard became the mantra. Literally every single week, weekend, Saturday, there was an exam. So in the course of one year, you would give like 25, 30 exams. Now, once you have prepared to that extent, you can throw anything at this kid. Yeah, you build a lot of muscle strength. Exactly. So take physics, take chemistry, take mathematics, which are the three courses. And you've got this soup in the brain of all these kids who are living, breathing all of this stuff. It's brutal to the sense that kids have no life. And when I look back, you know, it was probably not the best life that you can jovial childhood but wow did it train you well for hard work and perseverance and absolutely how many of your peers ended up going to higher education iit for example and at that time the clearing rate was somewhere around one percent or one and a half percent and very few of my friends made it in fact there were so many people who I just believed that if anybody is going to go to these colleges, they are the ones and they couldn't. So luck plays such an important part. Imagine you study for three hard years and now it comes down to that one One day and three times three hours, nine hours. What you do in those nine hours can just change your life. So luck is a huge component and uh, I can't tell you high enough, you know, how incredible that experience was both in terms of uh, humbling as well as once you clear that exam okay now what growing up here there were various individuals that incentivized my behavior i think of bill gates you know phenomenal success kind of a rocky you know his path through ibm or you know the more recent entrepreneurial celebrities, the Mark Zuckerbergs, the Brian Cheskys. In India at the time, were there individuals or case studies that were helping motivate you or was it just the raw need or desire to sort of rise above? What was the inherent motivation for you? Right. At that time growing up, you know, there weren't too many role models. For example, business success. Business in India, you know, you become successful through political connections. In fact, in that era in India, if you're rich, people would throw bricks at you because, of course, you became rich by connections and bribery and whatnot. So it was not considered good to be rich. It was if you are highly educated. Now, that was something if you're a Mm. doctor, you are tremendously respected. If you were in the army or the armed forces, you were tremendously respected. Self-made. Self-made, yeah. So you attend IIT and how many years was the program? It was four years, four years undergraduate. When I got into IIT, you know, again, there's a hierarchy, there's a rank. And since there are, you know, 200 plus departments, there's civil engineering, mechanical, electrical, computer science, chemical engineering, you know, mining. And design was a very first time newly introduced program. In fact, design did not exist at an undergraduate degree level in India. For the first time, Indian government authorized Sudhakar Natkarni to open up this undergraduate degree program and design a four-year program, you know, as part of IIT's newest campus, which is Guwahati. And of course, Sudhakar Natkarni was made the director of this program because he was the most accomplished designer. He was the one who established in IIT Bombay, the master's in design program. So when my rank, which was a little bit lower, imagine even 3,000 kids able to clear the exam and I getting a rank, which is like 2,600, So all the good departments, branches, campuses are gone. 
And now the choice is, okay, this new campus in Guwahati, 2000 miles away from home and chemical engineering in Roorkee, which is one of the oldest well-known colleges. And I really wanted to go chemical engineering. But something clicked in my dad's head. He was talking to IIT Bombay professors. The professor over there sold this idea to my dad. Mr. Saxena, if your son becomes an engineer, he would be in the machine shop, grueling day and night. But if he becomes a designer, he would be sitting in an air-conditioned office, <laughs> working with the CEO. That's it. That's the one. That's in, the in, path. In, in two minutes, he sold my dad on the idea. And I said, dad, let's go with design. So not knowing anything about the world of design, I was being thrust upon in this amazing field at a time when the world in Silicon Valley was also changing. This is 1999. Late 90s. Yeah. Steve Jobs is coming back to Apple. The first day when I entered my campus, I went, ventured into this library. You know, it's a new campus. There's no building. There were, there were no hostels. Uh, there were no, no dorms. We were living in the city outside the campus. So there was this new library, which was stuffed by Sudhakar Natkarni with all the world's best books ever in the design and art program. And the industrial design magazine was spread in front of us. And this was that edition of industrial design magazine where the candy Mac was first published. Oh my God. That, when, when I saw that spread of these five candy Macs on the cover of this magazine, I'm like, okay, this is what I'm here to do. I have a question for you. So for me, some of my best decisions have been, in some regards, subconscious. How conscious were you about that decision or was that just sort of an instinctual, you know, this one feels right? When my dad was so persisting, I trusted his judgment at that point. Yeah. And this is, again, growing up, I realized that he usually has the best judgment. So I often rely on that voice, that advice. But again, there was no way for a kid in India in late 1990s to know what are the best life choices. I did not know who Sudhakar Natkarni was. I did not know what the heck design is. And where the future is going to take me. United States, I had never imagined in my life I would leave India. But here I am sitting in my second year and learning color theory, representational techniques, uh, doing a seminar on art history. None of this I was trained for. I was learning trigonometry. I was learning differential calculus. And here my professors are asking me to Colors. sketch still life. It was an incredible shift yeah. in the brain. You know, uh, nothing makes you prepared for the kind of changes that are going to come in your life so rapidly. Wait, could you identify in your peers or in yourself talent for that skill? Was that something that you were now starting to learn? What is talent? The filter through which we all passed through was an engineering preparatory examinations. Mm -hmm. So all of us came with highly analytical, logical brains. None of us are artists. In fact, I think it was a thought-through decision by folks who created this design program that let's not get pure artists. Let's, do, let's emphasize the analytical. So there's this tussle. Do you have a craft? Are you a craftsman or are you an artist? Artistic knowledge comes a lot from your guts, your instincts, and it's an expression of what you are feeling. But craft comes out of what's the need of the society. Somebody needs you to build something. How can you build in the most efficient manner? So the decision-making process or the difference between art and craft is very nuanced. And I think that goes to the root of modernism. And they created this curriculum on practice more. So in my peer group, there were no artists. But yes, in, in my teaching uh, professors, they brought in artists, they brought in practitioners. In fact, we were the only department where every single professor was a practicing designer. We did not have exams. And the rest of the engineering college was so jealous. These guys, yeah, right. so we were doing, you know, movie appreciation courses when the rest of uh, the college was giving their uh, mid-semester and semester examinations. We were doing animation classes, digital photography. You know, this is 99, 2000. For the first time, I realized that design is actually about bringing in various disciplines together and creating something new mm -hmm. that can do more than the sum of its parts. It was like nothing I ever imagined 
my education would be like. Yeah. Uh, so somebody who studied trigonometry, calculus, now doing craft. Right. Fabrics. Exactly. This was incredible. Was there an industry influence while you were going through this four-year program? Were there companies that were soliciting you or your colleague, your your peers to sort of intern or to help with design ideas or to expose you to what they were building? Our professors, because they were the early pioneers, they were engaged with these ecosystems and they would encourage us to do internships. Now, in typical Indian engineering, you only do an internship after the third year. But the uniqueness of the design program was that we were required to do an industry internship every single year. So before we graduated, we got almost a year worth of industry experience, exposure. And I landed up in uh, New Delhi and Bombay in uh, year one, two, and three, which for the first time brought me to these big metros. So me coming out of a small town, little town, big city. now getting that experience. Let me speed you forward to, to sort of you, you graduate and let's talk about sort of post-graduation initially and then the transition to the United States. What sort of prompted you to pursue a master's and why Indiana? And Right, so this is year 2002. Markets, the big crash. In our second, third year, we had kids who were creating dot-coms out of dorm room. That was all the rage. And software companies are going crazy in hiring and everybody's hiring. And by the time we reached the final year, the big collapse has already happened. There are no jobs. Thankfully, again in Indiana, it was a new program. This They were inviting the third class of what was to be called as a HCI design program, the Human Computer Interaction Design mm-hmm. Program. And the two professors who started uh, that program, they had incredible understanding of design. Marty Siegel and Eli Blevis. Eli had an Indian wife and she had heard of IIT. So when apparently Eli told me this later that when he was evaluating all the statement of purpose and applications, he asked his wife, "Do you have you heard of this IIT? <laughs> this little school. <laughs> and apparently my name, first name, also matched their kid's first name. So the coincidence was so much that his wife told, oh yeah, it is one of the best colleges. Probably I got put on the top of some heap. And I made it into the list and I got a scholarship. I mean, the way these dots connect, that's why, you know, I have a very humbling attitude that a lot of it is luck. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is these strangers who subconsciously have supported you in your life. So I don't take anything for granted. You know that people do say that luck is the output of hard work (laughs) and perseverance. Could be true. You know, the more shots you take, the more opportunities that luck you have. So... I did believe that in taking a lot of shots. You know, that definitely was true. Anyhow, I landed up into Indiana with full scholarship. I had never flew in a plane before. Really? Before? In my life. Fantastic. No one in my family had sat in a plane before. My parents, my brother, my relatives, no one has even crossed the national boundary. For the first time, I'm in this, you know, airport in New Delhi with three huge ass suitcases full of all kinds of pressure cooker and uh, lentils and snacks and which my mom would just stuff up. Sure. And uh, British Airways had a deal going on for three full suitcases worth 45 pounds. And we made sure to use every little gram of it. And I landed up in uh, Indianapolis. And once I land there, it's like a different world. Why aren't any people around on the streets? In India, you'll see like thousand people in one glance of your eyes. In there, you only see cars, you don't see people. And, you know, it was hot. It was, I think, uh, June or July or summer. Uh, It was humid. And I do not know what to do. Somebody told me that there's this bus that takes you from Indianapolis Airport to Bloomington. So I was trying to find this bus. Ultimately, I figured it out. Somehow I loaded it up. Culture-wise, I got to imagine it was just stark contrast. The Bloomington, wonderful Midwestern city, but very, very different. I Absolutely, in every possible way. Like, And this is typical Midwestern, where cars would stop the moment you approach the road. And I'm like, why are these guys stopping? That doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah, they should just go and let me cross behind them. And the cars wouldn't move. It was such a different experience. And then everybody walking on the street is, is going to look up to you and say hi and <laughs> smile at you. And like, why are these strangers saying hi to me? Why are they being so nice? You know, the, there's this in a very small place in India, 
the general mindset is if somebody is being too nice something's wrong something's wrong <laughs> they're going to come and swindle you in some way and that just becomes part of the culture that okay something is about to go wrong right what do they want why are they being so nice exactly and now this amazing place everybody's so friendly after my first semester in bloomington i came straight to silicon valley this was uh, december of uh, 2003 So in December I came and landed up to one of my college seniors who was a student in Stanford. I slept at his place. I got his bike and I biked all the way up right here to Deer Creek to Xerox Park. And it was I think a Saturday or Sunday. It was all closed and I was peek through windows on what's inside. What is this place? Are these guys making some new kind of computing or what are they doing? and um you know just incredible to be here this area where we are right now this is where my heart is it's still amazing the energy in this place i could just feel you know living in stanford with my friend going around here uh, in university avenue it was mind blowing so i knew this is where i wanted to you be wanted to come here. uh and again you know the when the tractor beam had caught you yes and uh since my program in indiana was very new you know they were encouraging all the students to take part in all of these competitions so mm-hmm. acm association for computing machinery it had a chapter in sky computer human interaction sky and for the first time they had created a student design competition as part of the annual conference and my uh, advisor ivan rogers she was into ubiquitous computing calm computing you know how tech should just dissolve itself behind a uh, human experience and it should not be visible you know right. those kind of interesting not areas not intrusive invisible exactly and uh, she encouraged us to take part in this competition and uh, we really prepared and my team came all the way to the final stage with three teams on stage and we were tied at first place where a judge who later on I knew was from Adobe <laughs> she gave the other team an extra point mm. for whatever reason and we came second but in the audience was going to be my future hiring manager mm. from Oracle so I joined Oracle and I did not know what I got myself into one of the most hardcore engineering centric companies that you can get into as a designer where again nobody knows why the heck is a designer here are they going to program and code as well expectations was that okay sid is now here he is going to code and program one of the nicest user interface ever and i am coming with absolutely no knowledge of programming right i was like feeling so unequipped for where have i landed i read in an interview that you had online where you said i entered the most difficult entrance exam process without you know an orientation on that i i joined one of the you know steepest storied engineering companies at oracle without coding skills and then you know have started a company to revolutionize real time accounting without an accounting <laughs> background these challenges that you put in front of yourself are not modest i kept finding myself at the deep end of the pool i did find myself in situations where i had no clue what am i doing and i had to figure out my own path is that a comfort zone for you or is that a scary no no it's very scary i i am afraid uh, all the time none of this is easy the only thing that keeps me going is there is a grounding either in family i have an incredible wife i have incredible family my wife i met her in iit the first day i entered the campus there is this girl on the first day of orientation who comes and talks because she was one year senior to me and wow. she was the first woman to enter that campus of iit amazing she must be brilliant she's incredible you were at oracle for 6 years at a high level maybe tell us a little bit of what you did there absolutely data center user experience data center was the original cloud in fact people call cloud and this was larry's pet peeve that oracle has been building cloud for decades why are they calling aws the cloud eventually he also accepted that okay cloud is the easy way to describe what's happening but 
I got into server technologies division, which was, you know, layer on top of Oracle database. Mm-hmm. And now you needed an operating system for the data center to manage these thousands of servers. If you are Yahoo and you have these 10,000 servers publishing all kinds of apps, somebody needs to manage that data center. So that was a software. And again, with zero background in hardcore tech and infrastructure, compute, storage, you know, server architecture, bare metal, all of these were being thrown in front of my eyes. So mm-hmm. it took me months to just understand and learn. And within three years, I was in among incredible engineers in Oracle. People who would talk to multi-billion dollar companies, chief operating officers, or folks who have to manage infrastructures at scale or make buying, purchasing decisions. So a lot of time was spent into uh, really going to hardcore B2B enterprise software, designing it. And that's where I also got to see the general ledger software of Oracle Financials mm-hmm. or variety of uh, HCM products and which opened up my eyes to this whole world of accounting and the whole world of B2B business software, you know, and the infrastructure that was running this software on-prem. This was the before cloud era. So every this company... the Hyperion solutions, right? Exactly. And then the cycle of software delivery was just so long, two years at a minimum. My longest running project in Oracle lasted five years. Hmm. And after five years, Oracle acquired a company because of which the whole effort was to be thrown away. So, you know, again, rapid iteration, rapid delivery became the mantra. But again, we realized, you know, big enterprise companies following waterfall models have all sorts of problems. Anywho, I complete five years in Oracle and they gifted me a grandfather's clock which turned a switch in my brain. Have I stayed here too long? (laughs) What are they trying to say? So this was post-2008 crash. So jobs were not readily available. So I waited for a few more years and uh, I landed up in VMware. When I was presenting or interviewing in VMware, the team over there could not believe that as a designer, I got a chance to look at the entire gamut of infrastructure user experience, be it storage management, be it configuration management, be it all kinds of change management, be it compliance, whatever it be, because I was the only sole designer left in Oracle. Interesting. Everybody, when I joined, there was a team of 12 designers. And when I was leaving Oracle, it was just me and my colleague, uh, Richard, just two of us. Wow. What was the cause of that attrition? Was it not... Um, not perceived to be as important or you were handling so much that they didn't need all the other resources? This is a very difficult area to hire for. A designer typically doesn't know what is infrastructure. Yeah, because I was thinking you must, in order to be an effective designer for what you were doing, you had to know the cloud services intimately, right? You had to know the data center and all the software that was residing on the data center intimately to then be able to assess the best way to access it, manage it, monitor it. Right. And you have to stay in that company for at least some duration. So I was there for almost seven years. That gave me the natural understanding of infrastructure. And I had incredible colleagues there, you know, who were ready to help, who were providing me the background. I told these colleagues that, thank God you were not the interviewers. Had you interviewed me, you would have never selected me. But by sheer luck, I landed up in Oracle. While I was leaving Oracle, I knew infrastructure user experience, data center user experience like the back of my palm. And were you working with customer success at Oracle in order to get into the minds of the the users? Every single organization. So I was part of uh, Oracle support. I was going to uh, Oracle's open world conference and interacting with customers. Every customer who came down the door was pissed off. And I would hear till the cows come home, all of the pain and the bugs they had to deal with. I was working with uh, various other, since enterprise manager was like this glue operating system, we had to talk to Oracle database people. We had to talk to acquired companies like Siebel. We had to talk to applications like Fusion Middleware. We had to talk to Hyperion folks. We had to talk to all of these Fusion apps like uh, HCM, uh, General Ledger, which was running on top. Everybody had a plugin created for enterprise manager because each of these apps need to talk to the infrastructure. Right. So I was the only lead designer left after a while. And in an organization of 700 people, 500 of which are engineers, I was the only designer left. (laughs) So not only it was an open playing field for me, I always got my wish. Meaning if I'm the only designer, I can pick and choose projects where the teams would allow me to do creative work as opposed to being pushed around. So I go and tell product managers, if you need my help, this is how I'm going to do it. This is how I'm going to do it. And you can talk to your SVP of engineering. If you need my help, 
whatever I'm going to deliver, you have to implement. So I got a lot of leverage out of that. Yeah, I would, I would, I was working with four or five vice presidents, uh, 300, 400 engineers, a uh, bunch of product managers, uh, being the only designer yeah, where everybody needs your creative help is an incredible place to be in. And then when you went to VMware, was it similar? Was it a similar environment? So VMware was very much focused in a specific area. And VMware at that time was fighting this battle with Microsoft uh, in many different areas. When I landed up in VMware, they were creating, they were also starting to look at the public cloud. So they were looking at AWS and they were trying to compete with AWS. So VMware was all on-prem infrastructure, but cloud would relegate them backwards in some hidden closet. So they started this hybrid cloud concept. And I was put up as the lead designer to compete or create this user interface architecture to compete for the, with AWS, hybrid, environment. For the hybrid environment to compete with AWS. So compete with storage service, with uh, you know disaster recovery modules and whatnot. Eventually, VMware realized that S3 and AWS are just way too far ahead, and Microsoft was also catching up furiously in that area. Uh, so they joined the hands of the enemy. But those two and a half years of VMware really pushed me towards ambition. I was propagating a lot of ideas around, hey, if we do things in a certain way, we can actually compete with Microsoft. VMware was developing this technology of app delivery over the browser. You really could build these lightweight apps, which you can now deliver on the browser. And if browser becomes the operating system, now the operating system windows doesn't have that kind of leverage. And I was propagating a lot of those ideas, but it was always getting pushed down to the extent that people were not ambitious enough right. in uh, their thinking of where to go. In the later part of VMware, I got a little bit disillusioned because all of the design-driven priorities, all of the engineering-led priorities took a backseat towards business and uh, sales and mm-hmm. marketing. And by that time, the idea of Docker had already started coming in my head. So I'm like, okay, if I'm in Silicon Valley... Why should I not start a company? And so let's dig into that, that because a lot of entrepreneurs say that that they're they're in this environment, they're talking on the weekends with friends and colleagues and associates and family members, and there's this constant banter about startups and changing the world and changing this and ch- so help us get inside your head at this moment. So you've you've been at a very prestigious, very large, very powerful engineering company, Oracle. You had a lot of leverage there. You paid your dues. You made a lot of impact. You go to VMware, similar, you know, strength in market, and then all of a sudden the seed pops. So the seed starts germinating in your mind about a startup. What's going through your mind? So I had a partner in crime, Sugam, who was also from IIT Guwahati, who is now my co-founder in Docket. He was in Oracle as well. And he, but serendipitously, you guys didn't plan to go there together. You figured out you were both yes, there. Yes, yes exactly. And uh, he was in computer science. I was in design. I was one year ahead of him. Mm-hmm. He landed up in Oracle as well. One fine day, I saw him walking around and say, hey, hey, hey. you are here too. And in my six years in Oracle, I had a bunch of friends with whom we would brainstorm a lot on our lunch and whatnot. And Sugam was this guy who was entrepreneurial. Sure. Uh, he started something on fantasy cricket, but it didn't succeed. So that stayed with me. And when I was really thinking of various ideas, uh, Sugam was my go-to guy and I threw on three ideas on him. How about we do this or this or this? And he and I clicked on this thing called a document management system. And that was it. But we decided that, okay, I don't have startup experience. So after leaving VMware, so I decided I should join a startup. This was primary data, right. which uh, raised a shitload of funding in that era. And unfortunately, it was not a successful company. It got a lot of different iterations, but I learned a lot of things not to do. There was a wonderful friend of mine who's passed away a number of years ago. He's a venture capitalist named Peter Ripp. And um, hilarious guy, by the way. And he had been a serial entrepreneur before becoming a venture capitalist. And um, when I was started doing some investing, you know, he took me under his arm and gave me some of his mentoring advice. And one of his best messages to me was, you know, I only invest in failed entrepreneurs. <laughs> and that was, you know, that was kind of a funny thing to say to me. And I was like, well, that, how has that been for you? He's like, no, no, no. I don't invest when they fail. I invest in entrepreneurs that have been, have been around failure because they learn the most when things aren't going well. 
Absolutely. I completely resonate with that. You know, in our company of 80 people, I counted there were like 40 directors, VPs, SVPs and executives. And the burn rate was crazy. And the company was not transparent. You know, I have immense respect for the founders. They are terrific business people, but the company itself had a lot of issues. All of that aside, it got me that firsthand experience in how to build a company. Who do I need to hire? Mm-hmm. What are the challenges that are going to come in front? And the biggest learning was frugality, which again, I got from my roots back home. Sure. When you have money, you can do great things with it. But when you don't have money, that gives you your biggest learning experience. Yeah. Scarcity drives innovation. Yes. So when I started this thing, hey, we got to do this company. And I had another philosophy in my mind that, hey, Silicon Valley in some future, only founders and executives of big companies would be able to afford to live here because this place is going to become so crazy expensive and so crazy disorganized because of so much capital coming in this area that a mere mortal, why would they even live here? And I was like, okay, if I'm going to live in Silicon Valley, I better think of, you know, building some company, but what kind of company? Cloud infrastructure? Absolutely no. I was crazy bored with that area. I knew every element of that, like the back of my hand. I had to do something different. And since I'm a designer, a new area appeals to me a lot. And if there's a problem solving element to it, you know, that provides a lot of reasons for me to go dig deeper. So Sukhum and I start on this document management, which came from an early experience around sharing documents with a lawyer for our visa transfer. I created this bundles of documents of my entire life, sent it to this law firm who was doing my visa transfer. And they forwarded my 200 page zip folder document. All your private information. All my private information to five random people in the company, in the newly hiring company. You know, the hiring manager, the recruiter. I'm like, why did you have to forward that? So I felt that the access control and important document has to be there. Dropbox had just come in, but there was no mobile app. Mm -hmm. So we started with mobile first that, okay, can we provide a document management system? Eventually that led on to B2B because consumers didn't pay. In the first couple of years, we basically had no funding. We didn't have any angels. So we had to make do with very little, whatever we had. And then there was this competitor from Israel who had just launched their app. So I told Sugam, we better go full-time on this. So we left all of our jobs and we go straight heads down into mm-hmm. this thing with no backup. And this is where one of the most important you know, insight I will share is what gave me and Sugam the capability to make that decision yeah, was that and- you are the programmer, I'm the designer. That's all we need to build a product. Let's build something, launch on the app store. In late 2016, we launched mm-hmm. the first version of Docket. And then there was this uh, YouTube influencer who talked about that product. And all of a sudden, there were like these 5,000, 8,000 downloads happening and people were using it, people were reviewing it. It was an incredible experience that, okay, people are finding it useful, but we still did not have a business model because consumers don't pay. That should be written on my obituary, consumers (laughs) don't pay. Uh, Very hard experience. You know, we took an incredibly hard decision to change the model onto B2B. And that's when we landed up our first angel check of $25,000. I still have that check. So all this while, we have just, you know, one programmer in Indonesia. So we... And is it still at this point, still sort of the document management system where it sort of enables collaboration, but also control? So it evolved to the layer where we started to naturally understand documents, meaning can we build machine learning to extract information? Mm -hmm. That was very new, Mm -hmm. you know, in 2016, 2017. It's still Uh, relatively new, I would say. Absolutely. It's talked about a lot, but it doesn't... Yes, and we were going into personal documents, meaning... How can you have encryption so that the company docket doesn't see the data, but still there's a machine learning algorithm that can extract information out. So we still were on document management, but we evolved to extraction and understanding of documents, which was another interesting way to look at a future business model. When you think of finance and accounting, If you're going to start a company in finance and accounting, you don't think from a banking transaction perspective. You don't think from document perspective. But because of the foundation of a company has roots in document technologies, document understanding, we can effectively generate a general ledger, which is actually accrual basis gap compliant because we have all the documentation. 
And that's a very different way to think about accounting that you first start with documents. And then yes, if your banking transaction data comes in, you have two sources of data. And now you can do a better job of accounting. And mm-hmm. then if your technology is powerful enough, you can extract data real time. Then you can get into real time accounting. All of these pieces of insights came one after the other, one after the other. So first again, it was B2B for document management. Mm-hmm. Again, very boring use case. Why would somebody pay for document management for B2B? Then came the real big insight. First customer of ours, he said, hey, my wife is my CFO and she has to sign all these checks every night. She signs 30, 40 checks and I have to find a way to make her life easy. Otherwise, I'm in deep trouble. (laughs) You have this thing that can extract information. Can now it create an automated check for me? Which is when all the light bulbs started flashing and say, okay, accounts payable. Let's simplify that workflow. You dump all your bills. We extract the data. By extracting the data, for example, you're assessing how much is owed, to whom, when is it due, who's the vendor? What's the amount? What's the due date? Uh, What's the address where the check needs to be sent? And again, imagine these are small businesses. Cash flow is important. You can't pay them enough to move to ACH and digital. They still want their check. So, the so it gives need, them control. It gives them control and it gives them additional 14-day of float right. until the check gets deposited, right. money stays in their account. Right. 2%, 3% gross margin improvement is huge, huge for a business that runs on 8% gross margins. Yes. So that led us into our first software. We actually sat in this back office of this hotel owner for about a month, creating spreadsheets and running scripts to automate their accounts payable. And that created the first mobile app. And our mobile app, when we launched with Accounts Payable, was one of the only apps around in the App Store which could actually generate checks, Mm -hmm. physical checks, but through a tap of a button. And logistically, would you guys then sort of be the ones that dispatched? So we we have some partners which we use for getting the checks printed. Mm -hmm. Uh, If we had to print the checks, uh, that would have added a lot more engineering cycle. Right. That was not our forte. And not necessary. Exactly. So we just in time, we were just doing some search and we found a company which was, uh, you know, having these APIs and we quickly said, okay, we have all the pieces of the puzzle now. Dump the data, extract the data, create the check and check gets shipped. And then comes the question, can you sync QuickBooks? So now we are connecting on top of QuickBooks. And then somebody said, oh, I have this point of sale system. If you are doing bill pay, can you do my revenue? The thing that makes Docket unique compared to any other AR system out there is we not only move the money, but we also do the accounting. The reconciliation against invoice. Exactly. So for example, bill.com would create a journal entry for the accountant to later convert. But Docket is actually doing your accrual basis accounting in real time. Mm -hmm. That's the key difference between a real-time accounting system and just a workflow solution where bookkeepers have to come in and do the work. The great message here, one thing that was very obvious to us when you were pitching and it continues to sort of be obvious in this conversation is that your product roadmap has always been very influenced by your direct interactions with your customers. Yes, you know, at a high level, you started with a premise, but you sort of have refined that repeatedly by interacting with your customers and hearing what they want. Absolutely. How do you do that? I mean, it's not an easy thing to do. How do you create a culture that's so focused on the customer's perspective, the customer-centric? At some level, this comes because of a designer being part of the core team. And I advise often to my friends who are starting companies that, hey, get a designer in your founding team. Designers have this natural tendency to go talk to people yeah. and listen to their feedback or at least observe on what's happening. Designers are great observers of human behavior. And when you observe human behavior, you instantly see friction. You see areas where improvement can be done. And if you have a sound business mind, you can identify areas of financial opportunity wherever those friction points are. So in some way, Because of my design background, we were able to interact more with customers. And Sugam has a deep business mind, so he was able to create a value proposition. Between the two of us, we had all the ingredients to really build up a financially successful product, which the market needed. And you're absolutely right. You know, At every instance, our customers have pulled us in in a specific direction. We have now second level, third level insights. Once you ship the product, mm-hmm. that's when the real insights start coming in. And when you get your early customers, those are the customers who are also going to shape the kind of company. 
another thing that happened was we actually were novices we didn't know how hard accounting is <laughs> nobody told us that accounting couldn't be automated so we went and did it yeah there's something to be said about coming it with fresh eyes there's also the risk though of getting pulled down the customization path you know so there's this delicate balance between staying close to your customers and understanding what needs they have and prioritizing those needs but not trying to quell all of them only those that you know are going to have broad applicability and allow you to you know sort of build a product that scales how do you manage that part again this was also uh, luck in many ways we land the first customer was from hospitality industry now there are 40000 hotels in united states they are one of the richest segments of franchise businesses and their back offices have some of the most complicated moving parts so imagine your first customers are exposing you to the greatest amount of complexity mm-hmm. so you are not only learning about all these paper bills that are coming in you have to do department level accounting in small and medium businesses you don't often find companies that have departments right you don't have companies that have payroll for 50 people you don't have multiple revenue complexity meaning a point of sale system collecting revenue and accountable invoice based revenue coming in and now you have merchant processes involved you have chargebacks involved all kinds of complexity and then on top of it it's a asset heavy business mm-hmm. so there's asset depreciation happening every line item of the balance sheet is crazy so when you get your first customer with this level of depth your insights that you get in a totality 360 degree are much better compared to if you would have picked let's say a tech startup as your sample customer that has no revenue <laughs> <laughs> that has no revenue the product you would build is going to be completely different and since we did not know what kind of complexity we are getting into we just listen to our customers problem and we solve them one by one by one so picking the right segment as the beachhead is incredible problem and a lot of entrepreneurs who are first time they do not know how to pick your customer base the first customers that's why somebody who is on their second startup or third startup they are probably better at picking their segment they've learned in, the hard way in in our case now that we have solved the problem for hospitality we actually have built a product that is suitable for many many verticals so going from one vertical to another is not that difficult so give us a perspective on where docket is today and give us a vision for where it's going over the next couple of years including these other verticals so i tell this to many people you know general ledger is the least understood and the most ignored piece of technology out there for a business every single of your financial relationship is hiding in the general ledger every single of your human relationship is hiding in the general ledger your payroll your team is in gl your vendors your suppliers your customers are hiding in there it is such an insane area of opportunity that i don't know why more companies don't look at it and the part of reason is that the general ledger companies uh, intuit oracle netsuite uh, sage all of these companies have an iron grip on the general ledger so innovation hasn't happened for the first time there's an opportunity emerging that an automation layer can sit on top of the general ledger extract and understand these relationships and eventually provide automation for every piece of the general ledger in fact if you look at the balance sheet every line item today is a separate company accounts payable you have bill.com tne ledger you have expensify you have something on budgeting you have something mm-hmm. on forecasting you have so it's a soup of yeah. logos that a company yeah. has to deal with but the vision of docket is that eventually the data comes into general ledger this is a single automation layer that understand various pieces it partners with variety of integration partners it gets its data processes it understands how to categorize and account for it and just updates it automatically the populates it right but more than that the vision of docket is going into how can we make a business owner profitable not just successful but if you are running a business there's a best practice way to run it control your spend maximize your revenue keep your team transparently involved so they know how to make the business profitable if you give your general manager a target budget report every month 
they're going to work hard to make sure the company meets its budget. But small business owners don't expose their financials in that way. They don't give QuickBooks access and frankly, for right reasons. So we have come up with reports where you can empower your team members to make sure the business can be successful. Without showing them the whole entire... Exactly. So we also make the vendor relationships transparent. We make the customer relationship transparent. So these stakeholders, your vendors, your employees, your customers are connected through Docket. All their data is flowing through Docket so that we can account for it. And wherever there's a gap, meaning bills are not getting paid, we highlight that. Receipts from employees are not coming in, we highlight that. Your customers are not paying you your money, we highlight that. And then you can go take care of those relationships. So it's a relationship engine. And eventually at some level, Docket is now moving commerce forward. So when I look into the future, where we are headed, our mission is to move commerce forward by letting the business be on top of all their relationships. And so you started with your peachhead in, in hospitality. How do you decide on your next verticals and what do you see over the near term? Wherever there are low-hanging fruits, for example, going from one franchise to another is just a simple integration. It takes about a week, couple of weeks. And there is a critical mass there. There's sort of a network effect, right? Absolutely. Uh, and oftentimes our customers, they are savvy business people. Somebody having 10 Courtyard Marriott's might have five subways. Mm-hmm. They might have mm-hmm. 10 Dunkin' Donuts. They might have partners who have five restaurants. All of this keeps flowing in organic word of mouth. And we just keep on prioritizing all the customers who have all of these other businesses. So that's one organic way for us to see, okay, where we can get increased access. Yes. The second way for us is corporate partnerships. So we go out, for example, Docket is a choice hotels vendor partner. Apart from Intuit QuickBooks, we are the only other company, which is a tech partner. So now that opens up the door to thousands of locations. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, there are other industry verticals. Tech companies are going to be another and so forth. But the goal is with the existing product, are there additional use cases which we can hit upon? And is there an underserved need and a demand coming in? We often looked into, for example, accountants. But accountants traditionally have been looked at as a channel. We look at accountants as a customer because we actually have a product that can reconcile the bank accounts, which is where accountants spend most of their time, bookkeepers. Yes. We are going to launch that in quarter one, which again is going to open up this huge market for us. Last questions for you and sort of zooming up above Docket for a moment. You know, the thesis of this whole podcast is that there is a fabric to entrepreneurs and it's not uniform. There's some common characteristics. We've talked about your perseverance, your smarts, your hard work. If you were to you know, sort of summarize what will be the definition of success for you in 5, 10, 15, 20 years and what characteristics of yourself are most impacting you think will have the strongest influence on you achieving that success, how would you answer that? If Docket can help thousands of businesses. For me, that's the ultimate measure of success of the company. Small businesses deal with a lot of problems and you know, our startup was itself a small business. Mm-hmm. And if there is one thing that can be removed in terms of chaos or complexity, and if Docket is that ingredient, that would immensely satisfy me personally. That's great. But when I look back, I think we are scratching the surface of an entirely new category of uh, software, which is a back office software. Traditionally, finance and accounting has been looked at, you know, as a boring piece of software and nobody has looked at the back office in totality. If Docket becomes, you know, Oracle, I I joke with people that Oracle single-handedly created this job profile of a database administrator. VMware created this job profile of a infrastructure administrator. Mm -hmm. Can Docket create a job profile of a back office administrator? Yeah. If that ever happens, you know, I would call that as a huge success that now this company has really enabled individuals who can further make their own companies, their employers successful. Now that's a lot of power in that kind of a thinking. That's great. And your personal sort of superpowers in order to enable this, what do you think? I don't like failure and you fail only when you stop working. So for me, the superpower says I can continue to work day after day after day. Doesn't matter whether I am being successful or not, no matter how much failure comes the way, 
failure happens when you stop working. Yep. Um, or success is the output of perseverance and hard work. Yeah, perseverance is, I would say, you know, my one of my college professors in Indiana, he said, Sid, you are a diligent doer. And I didn't know whether I should laugh at that or I should <laughs> cry. I thought I was more than a doer, but I would take that I'm a diligent doer. Good. It's great. Well, Sid, this was a load of fun. Thank you so much for the conversation. I'm so looking forward to to uh, seeing how Docket continues to grow and thrive. Obviously, we have a big vested interest in it, but it's just a treasure to be able to back and work with people like you who are so committed to the mission and sort of the goals and and yet also building the right culture along the way and treating people respectfully. And it's just been a true pleasure. Fantastic, uh, buddy. It's been a great pleasure just uh, speaking about all these things. And again, a lot of thanks to Eric and David, uh, you know, for uh, investing in us and trusting us. Absolutely. This has been The Fabric, a podcast by Lobby Capital. Make sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date with upcoming episodes and content. I'm Buddy Arnheim, and I look forward to our next conversation.